Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Today, on the co-host chair, we've got Mr. John Copenhaver. Hey, Al, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Now, today, we are kind of going into uh, newer territory. In a sense, we talk to a lot of writers. We talk to a lot of uh, film people and all this, but today we are talking advanced creative nonfiction, okay? So that's a whole new um, subject that we haven't covered. So uh, we kind of got the, the best in the business. We've got some people that have been doing this and have written a book called Advanced Creative Nonfiction, a Writer's Guide and Anthology, so let's welcome Mr. Sean Prentice. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Alan John. And Jessica Henry Nelson. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're glad you made it. Um, this is quite the category. Um, we were talking about this before, and I know um, it seems to be one of those areas that's um, all over the place. I hear all sorts of descriptions, and, <laughs> and people give me all sorts of uh, meanings, uh, but I it's not very um, one-centered focus from people. I hear all sorts of things. So um, how, for a very basic description, what is creative nonfiction? The shortest sentence I've come up with for creative nonfiction is truth told artfully. So it's just true stories that are told in a, in a way that makes them uh, beautiful in, in whatever angle we're looking at. Under that umbrella, you know, one of the reasons that creative nonfiction uh, is so 
debated and, and complicated in the marketplaces because it's not so easily definable. So it, it kind of it, it is a big umbrella term that includes everything from you know memoir to uh, journalism, you know, and and everything in between, and it, you know, and, and even hybrid narratives that you know play with notions of truth and fiction. And we call those hybrids sometimes, or we call them lyric essays are, are often a cross between an essay and poetry. And so there's just this great big swath. And so I think for Sean and I, when we were conceiving of this book, we, we thought about creative nonfiction, the way that we think about creative nonfiction is really any narrative that's interested in veracity in a direct way. And that means that ostensibly the author makes a kind of promise to the reader that they are going to tell their narrative as truthfully as possible, as possible, while also um, being beholden to the art of the story. You know, one thing I, I thought about and even noticed when I was reading the book was um, you mentioned memory, and you talk about memory and how it's really kind of... Um, it, it, it's not always the same each time we call up a memory. Like each time we go back and think about something, we're kind of recreating that memory is sort of how you put it, I think. And um, that's an interesting part of it because so much of truth comes from witness and witness memory, and that includes ourselves, of course. So um, th that seems to be an, an, a question I have in the sense of um, – how do how do we resolve that? How do we know that our memories are correct enough to be, you know, explaining a story? You know, one of the ways that memory works, and I'm sure Sean can speak to this too. You know, is that it? Every time we call up a particular memory, that memory shifts, and so, you know, antithetical antithetical to logic some of our most pristine memories, so to speak, are those that we don't actually remember all that often. And, you know, as we move through our lives, those experiences, those memories change tenor, they change shape, they change meaning because we need them to mean something different. You know, we need them to fit into this narrative of who we are and how we got to be. Um, and so that just naturally happens in the brain. And so you can think of the, you know, memory itself as its own kind of creative nonfiction. And so, of course, the moment we commit that to the page, then there's this next level of um, separation from actuality, from event, capital T truth, you know, if such a thing were to actually exist, and, and the, the words on the page, you know, the experience for the reader. Um, and so I think part of, you know, writing creative nonfiction is acknowledging that there is no real veracity that we can access, but um, we can use the slipperiness of memory in order to make meaning. And by that I mean, you know, we can speculate about it. That's, that's one of the great tools that we have as creative nonfiction writers is to question our own memories and, um, and really hold them accountable. And, and ask, you know, it's not, you know, Brenda, is it Brenda Miller? Kim Barnes, one of my favorite writers says uh, it's not what we remember, but why we remember it, you know, and how we remember it that matters. And that's something that 
creative nonfiction writers are attuned to. Yeah, and maybe what I'll add here is just uh, a little bit more of the science to all this. So, Al, uh, back to your idea of memory, the, the one thing we can promise you, at least from what we know about the brain, is that uh, memory is, is broken. And that's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's how all of our brains work. Uh, number one, we have the forgetting curve. So we forget about 80% of the bigger things that we uh, experience in any given moment. And we lose that, uh, those memories within, a, say, a week. And then the other thing is eyewitness accounts are wrong about 50% of the time. This is even when the eyewitness is really, really focused on, on details. Uh, I'm, you know, obviously we're on Zoom right now, and I get a picture of John's face right here. So even if I study and study and study John's face, I still have a 50% chance of getting it wrong, even if I'm trying to get it right. And then the final thing, like, uh, like you and Jess were talking about, the brain literally wipes out old memories and, and recreates them anytime we remember anything. So each time it's like a, a distorting the memory. So the four of us are gonna have four different memories and they're gonna grow further and further different. Um, never less true to ourselves, but uh, maybe more and more untrue to what Kant would call um, the noumenal world or, or the, the exact world or the real world. It's interesting because um, I have, you know, photographs and, and albums, and I have come to realize that, in fact, I don't have a memory of the event, but I have a memory of looking at the photo, and somehow, in my mind, I've conflated the two. And, um, I mean, is that sort of, if people have that kind of experience, is that sort of what you're talking about here? Uh, yeah, I think that that's exactly what happens. Um you guys have had maybe similar experiences where, you know, you've been told a story so often and and you can't remember if you were there for that experience or it was just something, you know, your mother told you happened right. 50 times. I had that experience recently where, you know, I was, I was relating this memory to my mother about driving my little brother when he was three to the hospital and I was, all of the details were so vivid. In fact, I'd even written these details into my first book, and I get done my whole little diatribe, and she says, but you weren't even there, Jess. <laughs> and it, it was so alive for me. And I think, you know, if I were to write that experience now, I would have to account for that. So I think that's part of the contract that you make with the reader is I, I wouldn't write it the same way. You know, in my, in my first book, I wrote it as if I were there because that's what I believed happened. But if I were to write that today, I would have to wrestle with the experience, but also why I feel like I was there. And I think it's part because I was told the story so often, and part just, you know, the kind of emotional connection I have to the memory, because, you know, my brother was so sick, and I remember being so concerned. And it's, you know, it's probably somewhere in that gray area that, that we come to, to hold these memories in the way that we do at some point. But I wonder when these things happen and when we go to write them, put them down in the book or in paper, um, we're not really doing it consciously. We're not selecting to do this um, that way. We're not selecting to make it fit our narrative today as we're writing, uh, at least not that, that we know of. So um, we really believe what we're writing is true. How do you validate that? Well, for me, I wrestled with this for a long time, and there's, like we were talking about before the podcast, there's all this debate going on about what creative nonfiction and what truth is and, and all of that. And for me, rather than uh, seeing it as problematic, I see it as beautiful. We, we have 
uh, flawed memories, and that's just who we are. Uh, and we're also narrative, you know, animals. We we need to create narrative to make our way through the world. And I would guess that there really is no narrative to our lives. We're just living our lives, bouncing into things. Uh, but we put meaning on it. We put narrative on it. And then we put that on the page. And that's one of a million stories that we could tell. And we've just decided to see ourselves as as brave or cowards or happy or sad, uh, as in love or out of love. Uh, and we just impose that narrative on it. And sometimes we do it overtly, and that might be a little heavy-handed. Uh, but I think we all do it all the time, creating a narrative as a way to survive in this world. I've been writing a lot of true crime, uh, nonfiction, for quite a while. And one thing I've learned was that um, whenever you're, you're out in the field and you're speaking to people and you're speaking to them about a particular subject or a person, um, every, every witness, so to speak, that I, that I talk to, has a totally different perspective of that of that subject we're talking about or that person suspect, um, and they tell you a completely different. You 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 couldn't match some of their descriptions as being the same event around the same person, and so that that leads me to the next section when we talk about the creative research with non nonfiction writers, like um, because we're we're relying on um, I guess matter, subject matter that is outside of our own personal experience. I didn't see the accident or the murder, and I didn't know the person or the suspect. So I'm relying on other people's points of views, and yet I've noticed that they can be so, so different. You know, under that umbrella of creative nonfiction, I would say true crime is, is under that umbrella, and you as the storyteller have all kinds of bias, you, you come to conclusions, and, and, you know, probably I would suspect that part of your process is to try to repress those as much as possible or to, to be beholden to as, as objective a truth as you, can, as you can manage. And yet, you know, we're all human beings with, with opinions and feelings, and, and so it's, it's really impossible. But um, you're... you're you're, you're beholden to truth, to a kind of veracity that maybe the memoirist isn't quite beholden to because these are serious crimes and serious implications. And a true crime narrative has different standards and expectations. You know, the reader comes to it with a different sort of expectation. Um, and so when you do that research, I wonder, do you invite in all of those varied perspectives from the, the various witnesses? Do you allow those to hold equal weight on the page? Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it, it, one of the biggest problems, with I think, with my own personal writing is that um, quite a bit of the feeling that I get from people, the feeling, when people are describing things, um, I try not to let the emotion, and sometimes it gets in, on the first drafts, like you put quite a few of the thoughts and memories from people in, but you, you, it, the bottom line is at the end of the book, people have got to understand what happened, where it happened, and why, as best as can be told. So uh, those opinions of, from a lot of the people involved um, will get in the way of the story. So I've got to kind of keep them 
held back somewhat. So I, I try not to let it get too much in the middle of it. And I try not to have conclusions either. I try not to say this is, you know, what I think. Um, I might have opinions, but I'm trying not to put that in there. And, Al, one thing I'm thinking about all of, with all this is uh, there's an art restoration term called tritigio. It's probably said with a, a much more Italian accent than I can pull off. But let's imagine we have a painting, and uh, it gets some flood damage, some water damage, and, and parts of it um, bubble up and parts of it uh, fall away. We can restore it in, in a variety of ways. One is we can hire uh, an artist who's an expert in this style to come in and repaint it so it looks brand new. And that, to me, is uh, not necessarily true. The, the art uh, is, a, is a kind of a living thing, and it's been damaged. Um, so now if we make it look pristine again, we've kind of changed its natural trajectory. And what Tritigio says is what we can do is kind of sketch in what used to be there so you can kind of get the idea. You can see the rest of the nose or, or the, the, the eye and the way it's slanted. Uh, but it's done, say, in pencil rather than in, in paint. So it's really clear to the reader that something is missing here and it's being sketched in. And I, I kind of see that as what we're talking about here, where when all these different ideas come together, they don't come together into a perfect image uh, when you're talking about a, a true crime. Instead, what they come in is like a, a shattered window. We're trying to put it back together. We say, well, it's, it's, it's back together, but it's looking very different. So, um, you know, I think that's the beauty of it all is when we rebuild it, we show the flaws, the, the holes, the things we couldn't uncover, the overlapping areas, the, the contradictions. And to me, that's what makes uh, all of this most beautiful is it's not as pristine as a perfect truth. I guess it's just the point of view of how you tell it. Um, I guess that's what it's, <laughs> that's what it is, you know, because I, I could take, um, um, like Sean, I could take you and I could talk to um, people that know you from different parts of your life and I can say to them, describe what kind of a person that, that Sean is. Tell us, um, could he have killed that person or whatever the thing is we're talking about. And it's amazing the variety of answers you'll get because they've only known one part of you and they've only seen one part of you in, in a certain light in a certain place at a certain time and so all of that comes into play and then again we talk about how is it that they're going to remember this when they think back well he was you know i knew him 10 years ago and stuff so that, that, that's kind of the hardest thing you deal with in in my kind of writing but uh, you know I, I i guess that goes to you you have to connect with your reader by displaying things of uh, of the time at the time that you're you're writing I keep on thinking as we're talking about uh pro i guess probably the most famous true crime novel well invented true crime uh in cold blood um and i think i would i personally would categorize this creative nonfiction because um i mean capote pulled a lot of it i mean he he didn't take great notes and um, he claimed to have sort of a, you know, a, a superb, if not photographic memory. Um, you know, I guess I, I, I have a little doubt about that, but it had such impact as an, as a book, you know? Um, and so I keep on thinking about to what degree, how do I put this? Do we need to, 
fuse things together so that they have they really have an impact. Like, you know, how do we tell these stories, important stories? Um, I don't know. I'd be curious what you guys thought about that. Um, like, to what degree does fiction or fictional methods play into something like uh, non non creative nonfiction? Well, I think in the case of Capote, a lot. I mean, <laughs> 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 and I, I mean, you know, I think that that's a big part of you know what we've learned about that book over the years is is how much fiction you know is involved in it. But fiction is, of course, the being beholden to a kind of capital T truth is a misconception. And so, you know, what Capote made was a really beautiful, compelling, nuanced story. And that story has its roots in truth, in true experience. Um, I think Capote would probably have been taken to task by Oprah today if, if, if the book had come out now. <laughs> Um, in the way that, you know, James Fry was in A Million Little Pieces. Um, but, you know, the, there are all sorts of approaches to this question of truth and veracity as it relates to creative nonfiction. Um, and, you know, someone like David Shields, who wrote a book called Reality Hunger about, you know, must have been almost a decade ago now, you know, he's someone who is really prominent in the field of creative nonfiction and wrote this book called Reality Hunger, in which he essentially argues that there is no distinction between fiction and nonfiction. And, you know, the only compelling or even true stories are those that allow those, uh, allow the distinctions to evaporate. So much so that he will quote joyfully and prolifically from other sources and, and won't cite them, you know, and won't want to because he, you know, his argument is that language is, is open source. Um, and in the case of Reality Hunger, of course, they made him index at the back of the book, but he, he even encourages you as you're, you know, in the introduction not to look at those, at the, at those sources. So, um, and that's, you know, an extreme end. And I think that there's an interesting and compelling argument to be made there. That, you know, the minute you commit something to page, you know, you are turning it into an artifice. It's a, it's a, it's art, it's artifice, it's a construction. Um, and, you know, the more we embrace that and acknowledge that, then, you know, the better able we are to move on into, I guess, I don't know, in some ways a more honest per approach or process. And then, of course, you have journalists on the way other end of the spectrum who feel like that's absolute um, baloney and, and that everything can be fact-checked. And, and then, there, of course, there's this great spectrum in between. And I think every writer, every reader has to negotiate that relationship, and especially creative nonfiction writers. I think we're always renegotiating that relationship. We talk a lot about aesthetic truth or emotional truth in, in my creative nonfiction classes, for example. And um, students will get into debates about how much creative license is, is okay. And that can range anywhere from, you know, the color of the shirt so-and-so is wearing to the dialogue to the weather to details to, you know, composite characters. And people fall all along that spectrum. You know, I know I have my personal contract that feels ethical to me and creatively interesting to me. But 
that's very personal, and it evolves. And so I think that's what makes it tricky for, for a lot of readers, you know, is to enter that slippery territory and be comfortable wading through it. You, you talk a lot about the situation of the reader and um, how it's um, simpler to discover and share with the reader than the central question, you know, of our writing. Um, can, you, can you maybe explain what you mean by that? The, the basic idea with the situation is the who, what, where, and when. And, Al, as you were mentioning earlier, sometimes you're going to get differences of opinions. But for the most part, we can say where this true crime occurred. We could talk about when it occurred, even if it's kind of a, a vague, you know, 12 hours or, or two hours. Um, who we could say, you know, it was, uh, this is, uh, you know, who was uh, who had the, uh, the crime uh, perpetrated on them. And we don't know who did it, but, uh, you know, maybe we have a height or something. So we can get basics there. Um, so the who, what, where, and, and when is the situation. And, Again, that's the basics, and that just grounds the reader. But if we have all those details, all we have is just those grounding details. We don't have a story. And uh, the central question is um, why we're obsessing over this, what we want to figure out about this, why we want to unravel uh, this true crime mystery versus any others, what makes it unique, what makes it weird, uh, how it connects to anything else. So that would be the central question. That's a much harder one. Uh, for the writer to figure out, and then uh, it's a much more delicate balance for uh, weaving through your story so that when they get to the end and they find out who or, uh, did it or, or maybe we never find that out, uh, they don't just get an answer. What they get is a, is a mood, a feeling, a tone, an idea, um, and that might be called the nod of meaning, and it just pulls the whole book together, and when you're done, you set down the book and you just have to think for a little bit and just reflect and, and re understand your world in relationship to this book. So that, that's kind of the idea between the situation uh, and, and the story or the, the central question. That nod of meaning, too, just to build on that a little bit, is always um, embracing contradictory or ancillary truths. You know, that it's not a single truth. So there's obviously there's the, in true crime, you know, if we discover who the killer was, that's one truth. But the deeper mystery of that story. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Probably has much more to do with motive, with complicated dynamics and relationships and emotions and lust and rage and fear and all of that. And so, you know, the best true crime, I think, doesn't, you know, whether we discover whether, you know, who the killer is or not, we're left with a complicated emotional truth that we have to wrestle with and that doesn't necessarily resolve into, you know, killer equals bad guy, victim equals innocent. You know, that there's something much more nuanced under the surface there. And, and I guess you would use the forms of your writing to, to present that, right? Whether you're doing it as a... Uh, um, I know some of your, your categories, how you will do it as a collage, let's say, as compared to braid it, so they're kind of different. Um, what do you think, do, do you have a, I don't want to say best way, but what what do you think is the, uh, what's the, <laughs> what would be the best way to, to form out your story? I think for me, you have to know your story to figure out what it means. And you also have to know yourself. Uh, you were talking, if you interviewed a whole bunch of people about me, you'd get a kind of a collage. Uh, but what I've found is, is different people write in different ways. And, and Jess and I are good examples of that. I think I'm more tied to chronology because it's just how my brain works. A cause B cause C. So I, I stick to that more often. And I think Jess might say that she uses chronology a lot less uh, than I do. And there's not a right or a wrong. It's how does the story unfold in your mind? How does it make sense to you? And then how can you present it to the reader in a way that'll make sense to them? Uh, and there's a whole gamut. You know, the braided essay is going to take three different storylines. Um, maybe our killer as a kid, our killer as a middle-aged person, and our killer on death row. And it's going to weave those three together. And we're going to get, you know, early, middle, late, early, middle, late. And then at some uh, end point, it all comes together. Uh, the collage might take those same three and then just break them all apart and then add a whole bunch of other stuff, maybe snippets of the cities where they live, uh, maybe the victims. 
and just kind of toss them all around and, and see what happens if we play with all of these and what moods and emotions we get. Uh, chronological would just take us beginning to end. He started out at this age, and then he went to this age, and then he ended up to this age. Um, the lyric might just, you know, focus on an idea or, or a tone or an image or, or, you know, or a sound or something like that. Um, so I would say listen to the story and listen to yourself. Jess, what do you think? I think every story finds its form, and I think you find that form through chasing that central question. So if, you know, if I'm writing about a particular experience in my childhood, for example, um, you know, as I continue to draft that, that essay, the, the real question, the deeper question that I'm asking in the essay starts to present itself. I start to figure that out. And, you know, through the drafting process, you start to also discover, you know, which form is going to be the most conducive to the complicated truths that you're trying to unpack. So, you know, there's an argument to be made, say, for example, if we're, you know, writing a true crime book for moving back and forth between, you know, the murderer's adulthood and their childhood, because the writer's really interested in the influence that that particular childhood had on his behavior later on. Um, and so, you know, one of the one way that you could highlight that is to move really deliberately through those two time periods, you know, and find interesting juxtapositions where cause and effect becomes, you know, more apparent. Or, you know, the the knot of meaning reveals, to, you know, to say something more like there was no cause and effect, and that's one of the, or or not, you know, no cause and effect that we can discern, and so. You know, how do you find a form that's going to best support that idea? Um, so it's a really fluid, it's a fluid process, and it's part of the puzzle making that I think, you know, I always think of creative nonfiction as, as solving a puzzle in some ways. Um, and, that, and that puzzle is, is geared toward this knot of meaning, these contradictory truths that are equally true, and you ask the reader to hold them as equally true in the same breath. Uh, it's it's very interesting. I, I think that I mean, as a mystery writer, I'm very uh, you know drawn to both the gesture to kind of fit pieces together, and then I think a suspicion of doing that too neatly. You know, <laughs> and I feel like in a lot of ways, creative nonfiction it does something similar as well. Um, and then you know, it, it's interesting to think about the pairing of true crime with creative nonfiction as being a really it, you know, exciting and interesting one. Um, so I have a question for you, like, in terms of outfacing, and because, you know, I think in a lot of ways, um, something like creative nonfiction is playing in the space of, you know, ambiguity and, um, and a willingness to sort of be uh, okay with uh, a lack of resolution. But I, I feel like the marketplace often doesn't like to sell that. <laughs> and how... <laughs> How do you how do you sort of which is a shame. Um, I, I I hope I hope that that changes. But um, how do you navigate that? I mean, you know, how do when people come to your books, like how you know how how would you sort of um, how do you place yourself within the market? I just think it's a fascinating question. <laughs> that is a fascinating question, and I wish I had the an answer <laughs> to that. Um, <laughs> it's you know, there's a market. You have, I mean, there's certainly 
But yeah, there's not going to be a kind of huge readership necessarily for more subtle writing that, um, that you know, is irresolvable. Um, but, so part of it is, you know, part of it is the, the market of the publishing industry, the appetite of readers who are used to, you know, narratives that resolve in, in tidier ways. Um, you know, the experience of writing from life is such that the life isn't over. And so, you know, the nature of the work is, it, it takes as its premise that it's irresolved. There are ways, of course, to create a sense of resolution or a sense of a sense of feeling like the the narrative arc of the project has fulfilled its own aims, and that's different than resolution. Um, but you know, on a more practical level, it, it means that often you know you publish with you know more smaller indie presses with you, you know editors and readers who are more interested in that in that kind of work. And this maybe goes back to uh, the last question on like how to build a story. Uh, and it, it might just be, what story do you want to build? And you could build one that is easy to mass market, uh, and then it might require less complexity, so it can reach a bigger audience. Or you might want one that's more complex, and then you just accept that you're probably going to have a, a smaller market. Um, and then you can, you, know, you can guide yourself. What's your aim? And then you head towards that. That's fine. I mean, it's, you know, there's nothing um, inherently wrong with wanting resolution. You know, we all want resolution. You know, the reason we turn to stories, I think, is in part because we like the way that narrative brings a kind of coherence to what is otherwise chaos. And so that's very comforting. And I turn to stories with, with resolutions for the same reason. Um, so, you know, I think for every reader, there's you know, just in the same way that we all sort of enjoy art from lots of different perspectives and styles, you know, so too do readers, hopefully. I think that the, um, there's, I, I, particularly in this time with COVID and everything else going on that, you know, people, uh, interestingly enough, I think kind of hunger for both. I don't know if you guys agree, but that comfort of resolution, but also, you know, something at looking at the world that might, you know, be addressing the fact that there's not an easy resolution. I mean, have you encountered any of that in your, um, you know, writing or thinking? Funny you mention that because I've been, you know, I, I'm primarily a creative nonfiction writer and I read a lot of creative nonfiction um, because that's what I love. And I love, you know, art that's made out of direct experience. I just find that infinitely interesting. But in COVID, I found myself increasingly going back to novels. And, I, and maybe there's something in that, you know, that impulse to return to a story that feels, um, at, least, at the very least, put to bed, right? The fiction story is it's, it's created, it's written, and it's, and it's, you know, more or less resolved, and it's done. Whereas in nonfiction, you know... The writer's life, the speaker's life, the narrator's life continues in all of its complicated glory, and um, as do ours. And so, yeah, maybe there is something about COVID feeling like we need to return to a place of um, resolution. I don't know. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I would think uh, the more tired I get, uh, the more I want resolution. And it, it feels like springtime is budding here in Vermont. We had 
reached uh, up into the 40s today, uh, and it felt hopeful for the first time in a long time. So I sat outside. Uh, I read a section of uh, a, a poetry, and it seems like, you know, when I'm in a better space, I'm able to deal with complexity more. Um, but, yeah, through much of this, uh, I want nice, simple things that are resolved nice and easily. Well, there you go. It was 57 in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm wearing shorts now. So, come on. <laughs> you know, things are, things are looking up. When I released a couple of books a while ago, I almost put them as historical fiction, and I think that's kind of what I was thinking because there's a certain amount of unreliable information out on a case that's 100 years old. Um, but there's people that won't, uh, you know, then they think that it's all made up. It's, it's a really tough thing. And then there's so much speculative fiction on right now. And I don't even really understand what they mean when they say speculative fiction. Well, I think I have uh, at least one description. Uh, th this book came out of a series and we're proposing a book on speculative fiction. And I, I believe the idea is, uh, you know, taking oftentimes the world as it is, and then let's speculate on one little thing. What if uh, all trees died? Or uh, what if the sky changed colors? Or, or what if uh, gravity decreased by 20%? So we're speculating on these little tiny, theoretically tiny changes uh, and what they would cause. So uh, I think that's, you know, maybe a broad definition of what speculative fiction is. But the other thing I'm thinking about with that historical uh, novel idea is that um, I'm thinking about uh, Negro League baseball. And, and for a century or more, um, all the Negro League baseball players were outcasts. They just were not considered part of uh, really modern baseball at all. And all these historians went back and they scoured the, you know, all the databases they could, newspapers, uh, radio shows, anything they can get their hands on. And they pieced together the careers of these uh, baseball players whose careers were completely lost. And, and what we see is they're starting to say, well, we think this player who you've never heard of might've been maybe as good as Babe Ruth. And uh, you have to hem and haw a whole lot and you have to speculate a whole lot. But if you look at it from this angle, and if you use this sort of uh, methodology, you can see how we can take something really, really uh, old and, really hard to uncover and say, well, we think this is the truth, and we might be completely wrong, but it's pretty cool to look at. Yeah, yeah. I think the difficulty I was having is that because publishers will put you in that category, and then there's the other books that are, that are saying, well, Hitler escaped, or, or, you know, they start putting in a lot of things that um, it's almost conspiracy. Well, I would say put yourself in, in the um, – true crime, even though it's so old, as long as you're doing your research and you're doing it well, you're allowed to speculate on what you believe the truth was. And, you know, if you're doing your job well, call it call it creative nonfiction, call it true crime. My understanding, Sean, sometimes that a writer can acknowledge that they're speculating, you know, they can offer it not as an absolute, but say, this is a possibility, you know, then another way to handle it. Yeah, and that would be speculative nonfiction, which is completely different than speculative fiction. And there's a, right, right. a lot of different terms, but I love the use of speculation. We use it every single day. We speculate on the weather. The 10-day forecast says it's going to snow, uh, and then in 10 days it rains. Um, you know, it's not that we were lying. It's that all the data we had point at one direction, 
And then those data points changed. And, uh, uh, and that's, you know, what, how we survived. We survived via speculation. So we take all that, uh, historical data on a, on a true crime. We sat from this perspective. This is what I think. And I think I'm telling the truth. So at the end of the day, uh, when, when someone picks up advanced creative nonfiction, your book, um, what is it that you hope that they take away? What, what in a, in a, fairly short kind of phrasing, what is it that you want them to take away? For me, uh, I really want readers and writers to understand um, how broad the category is and how many craft techniques are available to creative nonfiction writers that you know, those, I mean, a lot of people don't know about creative nonfiction, or if they do know about creative nonfiction, they have this very narrow idea about what it is. And my hope is that this book opens them up to, to the breadth of, of creative nonfiction um, and gives them more opportunities to think about craft as, you know, from borrowing from fiction techniques or poetry techniques with, you know, just as rich a history. Yeah, I love what Jess said. The big thing is we want to bring people to creative nonfiction and bring creative nonfiction to people uh, and, and see how it fits their lives, their stories, uh, their memories, their truths. I think the bottom line on that is that you're saying that creative nonfiction is really for anybody that writes. I would say creative nonfiction is for everybody and the story. You do not survive this world without having stories about who you are and how you interact with the world. Um, and those are, are the, the way we live in the world is as creative nonfiction beings. Um, we create narratives on how our lives unfold. We create narratives on how we interact with our friends and loved ones and enemies. Um, and then we can choose to write those down and be creative nonfiction writers. Uh, but if we don't write them down, we're still doing the exact same thing every day in our lives as a way to survive. Creative nonfiction is, you know, is in large part, you know, to, to understand creative nonfiction is to also acknowledge the, the spectrum of veracity. And I think that's important, you know, just in the way that we, we move through the world. We're surrounded by creative nonfiction from our news to our podcasts to our television to our documentaries to, you know, from on and on and on. And, um, you know, once we understand that and come to terms with that, I think we can wrestle with, with nuance a little bit better. Very, very, very interesting subject. Very, very, very good book. Um, now, of course, now the book we're talking about is Bent's Creative Nonfiction. It's a writer's guide and anthology. It's written by Sean Prentiss and Jessica Hendry Nelson. Now, do you guys have a uh, website or do you guys like to do social media? Where do you like to connect with, with readers? Um, we have a website, and the website for the book is, that's where I was hoping you would jump in and tell Al that the <laughs> website address. I, I am finding it right now. So it, <laughs> if you go to uh, bloomsbury.com uh, and just type in Advanced Creative Nonfiction, they'll take you to their page, and then if you scroll way down, you'll get to our page, which is coming up right now for me. And it's bloomsburyonlineresources.com slash advanced-creative-nonfiction. Uh, but you could also just email Jess or me. We're both very findable on the Internet. Or you can find us via social media and just ask. Um, but our website has a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of terms and definitions. 
uh, a whole bunch of interviews uh, via podcast, which our authors um, pretty soon will have some other stuff up there as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it will have that link on our site too, so people uh, can find it hopefully with one click easier. Um, why did you guys set out to write this book actually? And I'll, let's start with Sean. So I set it out because um, I taught this class uh, when I was at my last university, and I had to cobble together a, a collection of craft essays to build the book I wanted to teach. And I just realized that uh, we needed something more. Uh, we needed one cohesive book for a class like this, for students like this, for writers like this. And, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. Uh, so finally, I decided that uh, this was what I wanted to spend uh, a year doing. And then I, I asked Jess to be a part of it because, uh, number one, she's brilliant. And number two, she thinks differently than me. And I wanted someone who would really push back against my ideas and, and you know, offer very different perspectives. Um, and that's what I love about having Jess uh, be a part of this book is, uh, I mean, she transformed the book and the ideas we include. It was just, it was an honor to be asked. I think Sean and I, um, we were colleagues at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And before that, you know, we had been in a writer's group together. And so we had just, you know, been fortunate enough to have so many great conversations about creative nonfiction. And we shared that frustration of teaching and having every year to, you know, reinvent this test by cobbling together pieces from one textbook and pieces from another and various essays. And when the opportunity arose to put that together into our own sort of um, scripture, you know, it was it was hard to pass that up. You know, and I, I think about craft that way. You know, it's it's really it's mutable and it's you can individualize it. And I just hadn't found a text, a single text that spoke to the all of the ways that I thought about creative nonfiction. And so um, this was an opportunity to do that in conversation with someone who, you know, was equally as thoughtful and smart about it, but also thought very differently. And, and what, what a cool opportunity that was. You know, I noticed that it just came out July 29th of, of last year. Um, when you were on the working process of this, you know, COVID was kind of, in a peak and there was a lot of shutdown and, and all of the stress going on around. Does that sort of interfere in writing a book like this or did, did it give you any new perspectives on creative nonfiction? Actually, I don't think we wrote any part of the book during COVID, which might just tell you about the, the, the long process, at least as far as I can remember. I think we were in the copy editing stage, which went on for a while, uh, but everything was written, I believe, before COVID. That, that is true, and thankfully so. <laughs> I'm very glad that we got the the writing part done uh, before COVID. And yeah, it was mostly it was mostly copy editing and proofreading after that. So that was actually a good way to use the COVID time. It was it was much more concrete. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. The one thing I'll say is we started the book pre-COVID, and I remember Jess and, and me sitting at a coffee shop table. And just like sketching out like how this book would unfold over and over again and getting deep into philosophical discussions about what all this means. Uh, and I'm so thankful that we were able to sit there in person and really wrestle through these ideas because they were mind numbing. Yeah, there's a there's a different energy, right? You know, when you're there with someone. Um, do, do you think COVID ha will have an effect on, 
on a lot of writing? And one thing I think about, Al, when you ask that question is, uh, um, I'm teaching a class right now called Forms of Joy in Creative Nonfiction. And in part, that class was inspired by this, I don't know if you want to call it a pattern, but um, something I noticed that, you know, that of course in times of real strife, you know, there's a lot of art that comes out of bearing witness to that. But there's also this other thing that happens, which is people react from a place of joy. They insist on it as, a, I think, probably a means of survival. And so um, things like, you know, Beethoven's Ode to Joy during the Congress of Vienna or this book that I'm teaching called, you know, Roski's Book of Delights, which is a beautiful book of creative nonfiction that came out during uh, the, you know, the Trump era. You know, it, it, there's a pattern and a kind of resilience to artists and human beings more generally that responds to these crises um, with, with art that is born and interested in facets of joy. And so I suspect there will be art in that vein. Um, but, you know, of course, like any complicated or, or, or you know, grief-stricken period, there's also the bearing witness to that and, and maybe finding, you know, the joy that sustains us in the crafts. The only thing I would add is that we seem to also be in some place with COVID and, and politics where we're really wrestling with uh, what truth is, what fact is, if there is any, uh, and how we can distort it if we want to. And I think that's something that's really interesting about this time as well, and creative nonfiction. Well, certainly, certainly, you know. And and we've got interesting art coming out, like Cardi B, with ass pussy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that I have to throw something. the mood during dark days, yeah. right? So. <laughs> that's right. I had to throw that out there, you know. Well, it's been a great hour. I appreciate you guys both uh, taking the time to talk to us a little bit about creative nonfiction. And uh, our guests today have been Sean Prentice and Jessica Henry Nelson. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, you two. I really loved it. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.